Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Today we are going off book with Henry James. When Henry James died, he left behind a series of notebooks filled with ideas for novels and stories, but he never wrote them. Not one to call it over before it's over. We got 10 of our best contemporary authors and James enthusiasts to write some short stories based on these little germs of ideas. They all differ dramatically in setting and style, but Henry James wrote these really rich, suggestive, enticing notes and... Here at Vintage, we love messing with and expanding the canon. So, Tales from a Master's Notebook was born. Contributors include Rose Tremaine, Colm Tolbin, Jonathan Coe, and lots more. And we got three of the contributors in a room with the Guardian journalist, John Mullen, to talk about the book. So you are about to hear from Susie Boyt, Lynn Truss, and the editor of the book, Philip Horn, uh, in conversation about this wonderful new and old idea. Hi, um, thank you all uh, very much for uh, coming to this event to uh, celebrate the launch of Tales from a Master's Notebook, Stories Henry James Never Wrote. Um, I'm Mark Ford and I'm chairing the session with uh, Lynn Truss, Philip Horn, whose idea it was, the editor, you all know all these people I know, but I'll introduce them anyway for the sake of um, uh, politeness, and Susie Boyd. Uh, all three are contributors uh, to the volume, which means it's Phil's debut as a uh, fiction writer and uh, a very fine story he's come up with too. But I wanted to start by asking Phil how he got this idea and then how he uh, managed to entice so many of our leading kind of fiction writers to uh, contribute to it. Um, I don't quite know where I got the idea. I probably stole it from somebody, but I'm not <laughs> quite, don't even know who from if I did. I mean, I suppose I've always been interested in things James didn't get round to writing. Like, uh, when I was editing his uh, letters, uh, I found a letter where he pitched to an editor uh, an essay about Jane Austen and um, reviewing Jane Austen's letters. And the editor obviously didn't respond, so we have no essay about, by James about Jane Austen, which would have been a wonderful thing to have. Or uh, the American scene, his travel book about America, he was going to write a second volume called The Sense of the West about California, and he never got around to writing that, so I've always been curious about these gaps. Uh, the notebooks I'd always uh, been interested in, but one of the things about the way people tend to use the notebooks is they don't very often read them beginning to end. They look in the index for you know, what Maisie knew or whatever, and they look back and see what James recorded what Maisie knew. Mm -hmm. Therefore, they never look at the bits about stories that he didn't complete. So when I started editing the notebooks and working through them, I realised, again, just how many of these unfinished subjects were. So did, did you pick a top 40 and then sort of send them out to your... Uh, yeah, I assembled all the ones that he didn't, didn't ever write uh, and put them into a big document. And then I, yeah, I started sending them out gradually to a few people. Uh, and I started with friends like Susie and uh, Jonathan Coe. It was a slow process. <laughs> um, well, maybe we could hear from Lynn and Susie mm. why you chose the story, mm. the, the ideas that you chose. Mm -hmm. Well, I got the big document, um, and um, 
And I remember, I remember saying twice was the right word, then trap was the right <laughs> word. <laughs> Slightly, that's what happened there. Um, I really responded to the idea, the general idea, as much as anything. I thought that was a very good idea, was to ask people to look at these note, notes and find in them something that really rang bells with them. I should say, you get yeah. the stories, and then at the back, you, have the you get the, the James's notes, so you can read the story and then look back and think uh, and, and kind of compare. And um, it's fascinating to see, yeah. isn't it, how people mm. have taken sort of some mm. plot ideas and some have taken nothing of the plot mm. at all, just mm. just some essence that they've interpreted themselves. And I, I think what I did, I kept saying to Philip, I, I, there are two or three, there are two or three mm. that I really like, and has anyone taken that one yet? And has anyone taken that one yet? And finally, I got to the point where I was really possessive about this idea, yeah. and I thought, well, I hope no one's taken this one, because I was so worried that someone else would, would take it. And I think if it had been my own idea, I probably wouldn't have gone back to the essence so, many, so much, but it'd be positive for somebody else's idea, and I was trying to do justice to the idea. I mean, I don't know, in the end, whether, whether it would come through in the story, but um, it was a fascinating process, and I, I, I found it um, you know, a challenge, but I, I, I love doing it. Mm. Um, Susie, what would, could you uh, enlighten us about which James Donay you picked up on? Well, I, I think I read about three and then I thought I'll do the third one because it's <laughs> quite a busy time for me and it, it did speak to me. <laughs> and this was from April the 25th, 1911 from 95 Irving Street. And it goes... And then there is the little fantasy of the young woman, as she came into my head the other month, who remains so devoted to her apparently chronically invalid mother, so attached to her bedside, and so piously and exhaustedly glued there, to her waste of youth and strength and cheer, that certain persons, the doctor, the friend or two, the other relation or two, are unanimous as to the necessity that something be done about it, that is, that the daughter be got away, that should be saved while yet there is time. And um, I'd had many years of doing a lot of caring for elderly parents and had a sense of um, the tremendous sort of honour and privilege of it, but also the exhaustion and the strain of it, and was very mindful that no one ever says, I wish I'd done more, but slightly wondering whether I might be the, the first person to say that. <laughs> and, um, I remembered also reading some pretty bad short story a long time ago, maybe by Roald Dahl, where everyone knows the exact point at which they're going to die. And I think um, when I wrote the story, there was a sense that no one really knew how ill the mother was. And if she was very ill, then everyone would have done everything and dropped everything. But if it was going to go on for another 20 years, that would have been a mistake. And I wanted to keep that quite open in the, in the story, that the woman at the centre of it sort of cleverly knew that that information wasn't available to her and, and tried to sort of not let that affect things so that when people do sort of try and prize her away she has a sense that um, what she's doing for now works and I think the difficulty of this was trying to um, keep a sort of Jamesian sensibility in the background so I tried to have the young woman in the story sort of living the dilemma of being aware that everyone's trying to sort of get her away from the situation whilst being reasonably happy to do it and thinking that, sort of wondering why everyone was so keen to get her to stop and quite near the beginning of the story she's on a bus and a, uh, a 
a sort of tramp sits down next to her and he's really sort of stinky and there's no one else on the bus and it's just the two of them and he starts having a go at her for not looking after herself better and that's when she starts thinking how much for hypochondriac is, is the mum? That's what I couldn't mm. quite tell. Mm. That's meant to be... It just, and that's a Jamesian sort of indeterminate, is it? Yeah, and also, as we all know, hypochondriacs are perfectly capable yeah. of being extremely ill and dying. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't mean that you're not ill just because you go on about it kind of thing. Mm. And so I wanted to have that yeah. unclear because the people in the book couldn't really know. Yeah. And Phil, I'm right, you, you know, the great James Scholar... <laughs> who then writes a short story about her from a James idea. What, what was it like being on the other side of the uh, glass, so to speak? Um, well, uh, what was it like? It was uh, exhilarating and a little bit terrifying. Um, like I said to Tessa Hadley, that it was an enormous amount of fun, more fun than you know, almost anything else. And then a huge sort of backlash of responsibility afterwards, <laughs> where you suddenly realised that you, know, you hadn't got the plot quite right. Or, you know, you have to think about your right. treatment of this particular character or whatever. I mean, well, you should have asked your editor. I, I, did, I, I, did, I, did, I did. Yeah, I asked lots, lots, and lots of people. But some of, I mean, obviously, um, I was very relieved when I was told it doesn't have to reflect the way Henry James in any way yes. would have yes. uh, would have written this story. That's the whole point. But for you, it must have been much harder because you would know how Henry James would have done. Yes. I, yeah, I didn't try and write it in the James mm. No, no, ways. no. I mean, there was a separate. I think there are some of loyalty in that. Mm. Yes, mm. yes. And what kind of relationship did you get with James when you were writing these stories? Did you feel in touch with the master? Did you feel? <laughs> did it change your sense of James's own kind of fictional kind of abilities or or what his work meant to you? I'd had quite a um, James-themed autumn because I'd been doing an edition of the ghost stories for Penguin, which was difficult for me because. I don't really hold with, nor am I interested in ghosts. <laughs> but there's nothing I'm more interested in than the things that haunt people, and I decided that if that could stand for ghosts, then, then it was possible to do that. So I was thinking in terms of um, hauntings, and which almost all fictional characters have, and so that, that was a sort of way in as well. I enjoyed looking up his long lists of names that he'd like to use and thinking, could I... And some of them were... There was one I wrote down that said, Bagger, Claring, Manger, Hush, Mush. None of which quite were going to work for my story. <laughs> I suppose what, one of the effects of the books is to sort of update James in some ways, isn't it? Make him seem a kind of modern or contemporary figure. And I suppose it made me think, reading it, what a strange position he occupies that... On the one hand, he's kind of highbrow and elite. On the other hand, there's all these movies being made uh, based on his books, it's, and yeah. he gets taught Turn of the Screw gets taught in schools. And do you say there's a movie of the Turn of the Screw every six months? Roughly, yeah. I mean, it's sort of you know an Ecuadorian version or a sort of um, yeah, uh, you know, a vampire version. I mean, or you know, a, a drag version. I mean, like all sorts of strange versions. I mean, and there are TV movies. It's, it's awful. <laughs> it has been written about more than anything else. And, and it's been written it. about more than anything else. Yeah. Mm. I want to know about the people who didn't, who didn't do it, or who, I, who, yes. who, and why the people, other people did. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I mean, I presented the prop. I, I gave people the proposition, and they were, could take it or leave it. You know, I mean, I, I, I didn't see it didn't seem very Jamesian to force people to do it or <laughs> sell it. Well, it was very possible. hard. Um, so you know, I sort of dangled it in front of them and saw what they did with it. And for a lot of people, it just seemed that. There was something about it being James's idea that made it taboo. 
Some people said they only wanted to work with their own ideas, and mm. that seemed fair enough. Really. Although, you know, J James's ideas are some, usually somebody else's ideas. Mm. I mean, you know, so many of his ideas in the notebooks are, are from a, you know, he's been sitting next to somebody at a dinner party and they've forced him to listen to some long anecdotes very often and, and he's sort of dutifully recording it just in case there's something in it. Yeah, the Colin Toy Bean one rather cleverly stages that, yes. doesn't it? Yes, I mean it actually is it's about the notebook entry almost isn't it, Aurigny? but I do remember a, yeah, a friend at university who, who was friends with a now quite well-known poet who spent an afternoon talking to him in the hope that he would get a poem written about himself. <laughs> and and he, did, he did in fact get the poem, you know, so he sort of set up the poem, you know. Uh, and so in, in, in a way that idea that writers are sort of potentially victims because they're always on the lookout for material and the people are actually luring them into... Uh, so people pitched, pitched to the James? Yeah, they, they just did pitch to him, yeah. How are you, Susie? Do you pitch or have you been pitched to...? Well, one of the good effects of of um, having done the short story for this collection is that I've started writing ideas for short stories down that I have no intention of writing <laughs> <laughs> And I met someone recently who said that her Oxford boyfriend had got into a really bad situation owing books to many, many different libraries in Oxford with fines accumulating. And he, he, he hadn't lost the books, but he was just becoming increasingly anxious about what to do, and he knew he couldn't afford to pay the fines, and then... Someone wrote his tutor, and then he was hiding behind lampers when he thought he saw librarians approaching him. <laughs> he was dreaming about angry librarians, and every time my friend went out with him, all he would do was talk about his fear of librarians. <laughs> he had to move to a different flat that was away from the library. He just was overtaking her life, and then one day she decided that she just couldn't take it anymore, and she said, would you like me to take all your books back? And he just said... So she went to every library, and she took the whole day and she went to 12 different libraries and then she had to tell his tutor it was all fine and then she got back and then she split up with him and just never <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote, I wrote that down so that's a story I won't be writing <laughs> I wrote it down yeah. so when, when's your notebooks coming out by the way? Oh, that's a good question oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> um, uh, well it would have been a bit quicker if I hadn't done this uh, well I'm supplying the text and notebooks for the, uh, this is for the big Cambridge University Press complete fiction of Henry James in 34 volumes. And I'm supplying the notebook passages for appendices for individual volumes as they go. So quite a lot of those are already out, but about six volumes. But the whole thing, three or four years. Mm -hmm. uh, Do you think he, he wrote them with posterity in mind at all, or were they? Were uh, they uh, yes, I mean, I mean, there must have been hundreds of notebooks, I think, originally, and he kept, I think, only the ones where um, there was either some autobiographical passage, I mean, there are passages where he you know, uh, writes down memories or moving experiences that he's had, or things where there's a subject matter that he hasn't yet used. It's a scary thought if he'd written novels on all the ideas, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. How long are the, let the letters? How many volumes are the letters? Uh, well, they said there were going to be 140, I think, uh, volumes. But, I mean, they are very spaciously printed. <laughs> and do either of you think you'll continue with James Ewan inspiration, though? Do you think, um, there's, you know, did you, think, did you enjoy writing the stories and think... I enjoyed it, but because it was an unusual thing to do. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I don't think I have the list anymore, so uh, I don't have yes. to go ask for it again. Um, but, um, no, I think, I think the thing is that... Um, 
But, but actually, we're all, we all wrote some stuff about notebooks, didn't we, for yeah. uh, Think of a Guardian. And it's so interesting that one does accumulate so many ideas. But on my computer, I always keep a list of ideas for columns, because I used to write columns all the time and stories. And I looked at it today, and I was just reading the first page, and then looked and saw it's one of 52. Mm -hmm. So the, this document has, has grown so huge. Um, so I think, I think one can't help having ideas all the time oneself. Yeah, I'm, I, I belong to two different Henry James reading groups, so I'm sort of always thinking about it anyway. Were you surprised by which stories, which story ideas people chose? Did you, did you have any preconceptions about which ones people would go for? Yeah, and, and, uh, I mean, well, there are, there are some I sort of regret. Mm. Well, of course, I mean, because lots of people said there are these two or three that I, I'm mm. hovering between, mm. and then they chose one, and mm -hmm. there's one, therefore, that I was looking forward to that I'm never going to get. Mm -hmm. um, like, uh, actually, I did note one, but um, this is one that I think Jonathan Coe was thinking he might do. Uh, note the idea here, suggested to me by Louisa Loring's mention of the girl, Chicago girl, engaged to Boston man, who, making a serious illness, fever, showed herself on recovery to have forgotten completely both the man she had been engaged to and the fact of her engagement. He, in face of the difficulty of re-establishing his identity for her, gave her up, etc., could only accept the strange accident. Um, mm. Uh, it's quite lurid sound. Yeah. I was really looking forward to that. <laughs> Any other questions? Uh, Phil, did you have any idea yourself of how each of the story ideas would develop, even if incomplete in your own mind? And if you did, did any of the actually submitted stories come anywhere close to any of your ideas? No, I, I, uh, I don't think so. I, I, I was, I mean, it, the, the best bit of the process really was getting the stories as they came in and reading them. Uh, and I never quite knew what to expect, and, uh, mm. uh, and I was very pleased with it. Who do you wish you'd got? Oh. <laughs> uh, you can, I think you can name draft it. Yeah, well, I mean, there were lots of people it would be interesting to have whom I did ask. It's hard to think there's any other writers, though, who, who I'm mm. trying to think of who, whose notebooks might be pillaged for uh, <laughs> stories. which are meta-stories, they're about the literary world and how the literary world works, and you've got this book which is a project that's part of the literary marketplace, and that this book is existing in a literary marketplace, and it's interesting that James too was in that marketplace and was in that sequence of uh, chapters in a larger book where he wasn't entirely happy with how oh, yeah. the story unfolded. So th I think there's a way in which this, this book has a, as an object, which is about the modern marketplace, and it has some very interesting parallel with James's own difficulty in the marketplace, which was one of the subjects I think that Mark really began with, mm -hmm. in relation to the bestseller. Yeah, I was amused by the story you said, which was close to Susie's one, which he did actually write, called Europe, which yes. I haven't come across. Have you uh, read Europe? No, I haven't. No. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a story in which um, there's an old New England matriarch 
let's say four young daughters, and uh, they all want to travel to Europe, but they're not. I may be misremembering it a bit, but um, they all want to travel to Europe, but they're uh, they're going to um, travel to Europe when the mother finally dies, and so. But then she lives to 105 or something, and they're all in their 80s, and, it's, and they start dying one by one. The mother is still surviving. So. Um, uh, Why is that so funny? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've always enjoyed that. <laughs> I, really, I really enjoyed reading the other, the other yeah. stories. I was, obviously, I was very scared um, reading mm. the other stories um, because you know, it's, really, mm. it's terrifying, in fact. But I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a very. Uh, oh. it, it made for a very interesting collection. Um, and sometimes, you know, mm. uh, invited. Collections like this don't don't quite work, but I've I've mm. really felt that it, it did have a very good structure and and the, the stories flowed very well. And having the appendix at the back with the mm. notes, so you don't know the note if you don't want to before you read the story. You read the story, then read the note. That's that works. If you read the story, note, then the story, that works. Um, and I, I just um, I found the inter- that because of that relationship between the two. Well, thank you very much for coming, and uh, Phil and Lynn and Susie, a round of applause, please. Thank you so much for listening. If these stories have caught your fancy in any way, you can pick up Tales from a Master's Notebook today. Thank you so much for listening to the Vintage Podcast. Do share it with a friend if you liked it. It really helps us reach more readers. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and tell us what you thought of the podcast at Vintage Books. And until next time.